You may be seated. And as you're seated, you can turn, if you would, to the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation. I uh, asked my guys on the way here this morning, I, or, I actually asked, I was stating to them that today is a, a day that many people dread. And, uh, and I said to them, do you know why? And they said, because you're starting, starting your study in the book of Revelation. I'm not quite sure what to take from that. And I said, no, it's because tomorrow everybody's normal schedule has to start again. Kids are back in school. Mom and dads have the thing. Do we have toddler church? We have nursery, but not We have nursery, but not toddler church. Okay, so from zero to two in the nursery. Okay. Um, but yes, it is not hopefully a dreaded day because we're starting our study, starting our study in the book of Revelation. Hopefully, that is a great time. However, for me, for many years, this has been a study that I said I would never do until I understood it. But a year and a half ago, God told me that January 2009, I was going to start a study in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know how you believe about God talking to you, but I believe God talks to me. And, uh, and that he directs me and guides me and uh, compels me. And so, um, a year and a half ago, as I was looking to the future and, and considering the teaching and stuff like that, I, I, there was no doubt in my mind that this was a study that I was supposed to start. So, I can't tell you at this very moment that I fully have a grip on the book of Revelation. So I hope that doesn't totally disappoint you. It's an odyssey. It's an adventure. And so for me, I come at this study with a, a certain amount of apprehension, appreciation, and anticipation. I love that because they all start with A and then end with a shin. But I do. With each one of those, I'm just, I'm nervous as we come into this. There's a, a certain amount of understanding that you need to have coming into this book. But the best thing I can tell you about prophecy as we get to that portion of it is that we'll understand it Better. after it happens. That's right. It's amazing how many positions on prophecy there have been throughout the years, even up until the time of Christ's first coming, and how many people got it wrong. You know, there wasn't many people waiting in the temple that day when, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to be uh, dedicated. And so, um, so as we go into this, I don't come to tell you that I've got all the answers. Just 99.9%. No, anyways, no, no, not even that many. I, I come to you to tell you that I've got a desire, and I believe that God blesses those who study this word, and we're going to look at that in just a brief moment. There is, in this um, book, a revealed outline, a divine outline. So this makes it real easy for me as I come to this and setting up an, an outline, a presentation of... of of this book to you. It's not a matter of having to totally read through the entire thing and try to figure it out and place it before you. But Jesus Christ himself gave us an outline for this book. Did anybody pick it up as Steve was reading through chapter 1 today? Look down at verse 19. Verse 19. In fact, I'll begin reading at verse 17 to keep in context. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I think we're talking about Jesus, yes. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will 
take place after this. And so John began to write. What do you think he wrote? The things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will be. And so, as we look at this, you may say to yourself, what? But it really is an outline. Because we see in the first um, so many verses here, verse 20 verses, the things that have been. That's chapter 1. And then, as we go into chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's the things that are. He's writing to the seven churches and giving them instruction regarding their day. And then as we go then into chapter 4 and beyond, and there's kind of a debate whether chapter 4 and chapter 5 could actually be part of the things that are and not part of the things that will be. But for the sake of our outline, we're going to break it there at chapter 4 um, because that's where the debate becomes as far as what is prophecy. And so... Um, we'll take a little interlude before chapter 4, and we're actually going to do a, a study of prophecy throughout Scripture. So we'll go back into the Old Testament, and we'll start building the foundation for what we should understand when we come to the book of Revelation. I think many people misunderstand the writings, the, the teachings, the, the revealing that Christ did in this book, because they don't have the foundation of the rest of prophecy. And so they, they take things out of context, and we know that all things should be taken in a scriptural context and comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. And so, I don't know when it will be Then we finally get to that. It could be three months from now. It could be six months from now. But that will be down the road. And then we will come back then into the things which will be. And that begins in chapter 4. Okay, and so that's our, our divine outline. So, our plan then as we go forward is these next couple weeks, we're going to look at these, these first couple parts of the outline. Today, we're going to begin our consideration of the things that have been. We're going to be looking at John's reception of Christ's revelation. And so I appreciated Steve's comment as he began reading that many, um, regard this as John's revelation, the revelation of John, but it really isn't the revelation of John. It was a revelation that was given to John. It was really the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you would, let's look at this beginning of verse 1 again. We'll read a couple of verses in just as well as a little preamble thing here, on Wednesday I began doing something that I felt convicted about for a while, and that is seeking to use technology with the course of the message. And so there was only one glitch on Wednesday. Hopefully there won't be any glitches here, but clearly I will be distracted as I'm trying to remember to hit a button. Um, you know, and uh, so, so work with me on this one. And if you realize that I've forgotten to hit a button, you can all say at one time, hit the button. Anyways, and so... We'd have like a game show, you know, and um, so when, 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 the, when the, the, uh, the, the letter isn't turned over, you can kind of let me know. Anyways, but beginning in verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now honestly, that's all we're going to accomplish out of chapter 1 today. Just those three verses. There is, again, so much involved in these. And so we'll see if we can get this thing going. And so, uh, we've moved a little bit. 
hopefully you can see that I tried to use white on a dark background, thinking of the lighting in here, that that might be easier to see. And so I am open to, uh, to comments, as long as it has nothing to do with my preaching style. Anyways, um, you can comment all you want on the, on the video presentation, okay? So anyways, no, you can comment on my pre preaching style too. But anyways, but as we look at this, we're going to look at three major things as we come through chapter one. We're going to look at the purpose of this writing of Revelation. We're going to look at the promise that was given to us. We'll see that today. And then we're going to look at the presence that is described as well. And we know that that presence is the presence of who? Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Just a phenomenal picture. And I know that I don't want to shortchange that presence today. And that's why I'm purposely not going in there. If this winds up being a 20-minute message, it's a 20-minute message because I want to focus fully on the presence of Jesus Christ and, and um, fully not feel like I'm rushing through something. Not to mention the fact that clearly you've got a full... Uh, sermon note sheet anyway, and I can probably preach for an hour on one verse, so this is not a, a big deal. So, but in the purpose, as we saw the purpose, as we read, as we read through these first three verses, that we read that this is, first of all, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Does anybody know the Greek word for revelation? Apocalypse, or apocalypto, but yes, but apocalypse. So whenever you hear the word apocalypse, it's really just a, a, a transliteration, if you would. It's a bringing from the Greek into the English of the Greek word, apocalypto, which means to reveal, to manifest, and to make known. And so this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but our culture today likes to make the word apocalypse really mean what? Something really bad, something devastating. Apocalypse, yeah, that's your finish line, it's apocalypse now. And so, apocalypse now is all about what? The end, the, the end of the world, killing, destruction, exactly right. Now, it's really interesting, because Jesus Christ's revelation isn't all about devastation. Now, the end of it has some mighty devastation in it. It has the wrath of God being poured out. But God's purpose in writing this is to prepare us, not just to scare us. Does that make sense? I mean, God's desire for Jesus Christ to come into the world was not to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. So, so understand that the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is not something to be revealed to us in order to make us afraid. It's something to make us prepared. And hence, part of the blessing that's going to come from this. We are told, and we'll see this again in a few weeks from now as we begin to do the prophecy section, but we're told by Paul in his writing to the Thessalonians that we are not of the darkness, but rather we are of the light. We are not the ones who, who this time should, be, should overtake us like a thief in the night. Though it may come like a thief in the night, you and I should understand and should be able to see the signs. We should understand the times. We should understand the happenings that are going on and be able to be prepared for the time. Is that part of the reason that God has me begin speaking this in January 2009? Honestly, I don't know. There have been a lot of preachers who have preached through the book of Revelation over the course of thousands of years. And there's one thing we can say for sure, and that is what? Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet. Right? So, 
But I do believe, personally, honestly, that Jesus Christ is coming in my lifetime. When it is, I don't know. No man knows the day or the hour. But I believe that I can look out right now and I can see the signs. I can see the, the, the signifiers that God has laid out. And I believe that some of those things are beginning to take place, are beginning to come together. Does that make sense? And I think that it's wise for us to hear and heed God's teaching regarding the times of the end. And so we see, first of all, this revelation of Jesus Christ, its meaning, but secondly, its mode. How was the revelation given from God through Christ to us? First of all, we're told that he was sent by an angel. Now, the word sent there, there is multiple words in the Greek, and I don't always like to have Greek classes, and I mean, I know some people get frustrated with this, but words are important, and, and there are multiple words, and there is a reason why certain words were chosen. Well, this word is the word for the apostolos. Does that sound like any other word you know in English? Apostolos? Apostle. Okay? And so apostle, again, is another one of those English words that came as a transliteration from the Greek. And it means an official messenger. Well, this is the verb form of it, apostello. And so this is a, an official sending of a message. Now, what's exciting is this angel, really, the Greek word for angel, anybody want to know what it is? Angelos. <laughs> Go figure that one. Okay? And so angel, again, is another one of those English words that was just transliterated and brought in. But you know what angelos means? Messenger. It doesn't mean angel. We have in the, our mind then that this is an angel. Now it could be an angel. It could be a cherubim. It could be a seraphim. Those are what you think of as angels. Get it? But an angel is a messenger. So for example, when Gabriel, who truly was an archangel, it was a, a high messenger of God, but probably a cherubim, when he came and spoke to Zechariah, when he came and spoke to Matthew, when he came and spoke to, Matthew, I'm sorry, um, Joseph, when he came and spoke to Mary, he was acting truly as a messenger, as an angelos at that time. But what we're going to see later on when we talk about the angels of the churches, they probably aren't angels, cherubim, seraphim of the churches, but rather they were probably the messengers from the churches who came from the mainland to visit John, while he was on the island. And so, but what we do know here is that Jesus Christ received this revelation and gave it to John by way of an official messenger of God. Okay? And so it was sent by an angel, but it was then, secondly, it was signified by the angel. Now, whether I ever really fully understood this before this week or not, I don't know, but I got a real kick out of this. Marcia can tell you when, when she tries to homeschool, when tries to homeschool with the English, that I am the worst nemesis. Because I love to go in and I love to, to do the word games, you know? So, for example, when you, your clothes are, are dirty, what do you do with them? You, no, you don't. You wash them. I mean, how do you say A-S-H? A -H? Ash. How do you say B-A-S-H? Bash, cash, dash, gash, bash, hash, lash, mash, nash. It's all splash, so you wash. Anyways, so, so I like playing 
playing little games with the English language. And so, but it never hit me before until I studied the Greek side of this. This word signified is really not the word signified. Look at it again. What word is it? It's signified. That's exactly right. It's signified. It's not signified. Why do we do this? If I got rid of the, the ified at the end, you would say that was a sign. And so why do we put the ified at the end of it and say it's all of a sudden signified? We, I mean, you know, we don't do that. And so it's the signified. It was signified by the angel. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, because in the Greek, this is the word for the sign. So like, for example, the Jews request a sign. They look for some uh, demonstrative way to fully prove that this is truth. Does that make sense? That this actually was from God. And so many times we refer to signs as miracles. Miracles and wonders are great signs. But it doesn't always have to be that somebody is risen from the dead or somebody is healed of their leprosy or someone who was born blind all of a sudden has their sight. Those are good signs. But clearly, as we go through the book of um, 1 Corinthians, later on when we get to the, the gifts, some of those gifts are signs. The greatest sign, Matt Bebo, this is my friend from Colorado, Matt Bebo, and we were just talking about this the other day. What was the sign to the Jews? That the gospel was true. Speaking in tongues, or really speaking in foreign languages. And so the great sign to the Jews that God was opening up the gospel as he proclaimed in the, in, the, in the Old Testament was the gift of tongues, or languages, as we see in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 10. And so when you understand that, it really opens up the concept of what tongues and languages are all about. Well, those were a sign. Not a very demonstrative thing. But they were something that God had signified beforehand would happen to validate the message. So, back in the book of Isaiah, God said, with the people of another lip and another tongue, I will, I will declare the praise. And so, and so here, this revelation of Jesus Christ is signified, it's signified. It's, it is validated by signs via the angel, that this revelation is true. It's important. Why? There's a lot of people having a lot of revelations out there. Yes? I mean, think about, even in our day-to-day, -day, how many people say they have a word of the Lord that's in addition to here? Have you ever had a uh, someone from the Church of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons, come to your door? What do they have? They have a Book of Mormon, which is what? An additional revelation to your book here. Okay? Jehovah Witnesses. They had their prophets who had additional revelations about when Christ came back. They will die telling you that Christ has already come and he came back in the early 1900s. It's an amazing thing. Okay? There are many people, and then we, that's, I'm using cults there, but we can come even to within Christen, Christendom about people who want you to add things to the Bible. So, those things have got to be tested by, attested to, by some very significant things. Okay? And so, this was signified by the angel. Now, it was given then to the servant of Jesus Christ. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ given to 
the servants of Jesus Christ, but specifically to one particular servant to give to the other servants. And that particular servant was John. And what was John's function? Does anybody see in this what John's function is? What does he say his function is? To witness. To bear witness. Oh, I forgot purpose. See, you guys didn't tell me. I didn't fill the blank. Okay. Ah, an apocalypse. There we go. See, we're learning. Sent, angel. Signified. Literally, can't you see the red? Okay. So red is not good, huh? Red is red is bad. Okay, red is bad. If we turned off the light, red would be okay. So, all right. Um, Devin, you want to do that? You want to hit, hit the light? I think everybody will see. I think it's light up outside. Can you, are you okay with it? Can you see otherwise, though? I mean, I want you to see your Bible. The Bible is definitely more important than my outline, okay? Um, but anyways, there we go. Yeah, red is okay when the light is out. Red is not okay when the light is on. So we'll have to work that one through here. Okay. So, but his job was to bear witness. And now what's really interesting is John states this as well in his own, in his own um, book about the life of Christ, in, where he ends it in John 21, verse 24, and I have that up there. It says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, the, the concept, the word for the witness or testimony in John 21 is the word martyreo. Um, the word martyreo is a, is a Greek word which refers to a legal testimony. And so, for example, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the, to the disciples, he says, and you shall be, not you might be, I would desire you for you to be, but he says, you will be, what? Witnesses. You will be witnesses for me. Whether you like it or not, you will give testimony on the stage of the world after you receive the power of the Holy Ghost. After the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And so you and I, in the same light, are Witnesses. Now, John was called to bear witness of what? The things that he had heard and seen, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the witness then was responsible to only talk about what he, what he knows. If there is a, a, a big murder case in town where they need someone to come in and, and to talk about splatterology, does anybody know what splatterology is? What is it? What happens when, blood, when, when a body that's bloody falls and it splats? Anyways, so there really is a term called splatterology. And, and there are people who are experts in that field, okay? Um, whether you like that or not. Anyways, and so, but if that was to happen and they needed a blood splatterologist to come and to, to give testimony about the positioning of the body and, and how it should have happened, do you think that they would call me? No, not at all. I would not be the right guy. Now, they may ask me for a case study. They may want to accuse me to, to find out what happened. But anyways, but they would not call me to be the guy to give the expert testimony. Chances are, I don't know of anybody in this room that would meet that as well. However, if somebody wants to know what Jesus Christ is like, they ought to be able to call anybody in this room. If you go by the name of God. If you, if, you, if you say that you're a believer, then you ought to be able to be on the stand at any moment to give a testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be a theologian. I'm using a lot of Greek words. I expect that probably 90 to 98% of you, 
depending on how many people we have here today, don't have a clue of what those words mean. That's teaching. However, and so you wouldn't be called upon to give testimony of that. But what you would be get called upon to give testimony of is the things that you know. And I want to ask you, just as John, as we're looking at this, as John is going to be diligent, he's going to be faithful, a faithful witness to bear truth of what he knows. How faithful are you to declare the testimony, to declare the witness that God has given you? Now, what is his testimony? What is it that, that he's been given? Well, the word of God, the testimony of Christ, and the things that he saw. I ask you, what more do you need to know? The word of God? The testimony of Christ? What he's done for you? And what you have seen? I know what God's word says. I know what Jesus has done for me. And I know how God has revealed himself in my life in such a magnanimous way, a magnificent way. So, when I go out, I don't have to be a, a great theologian. I just have to state what I know. Now, the second part of this is, is an exciting part of this, and that is the promise. The promise, and I have a blank, so that means I have to hit the button. The promise, okay? And in the promise... There are two sides of the promise. First of all, we have the blessing. If you have your sermon note sheet, you'll see that there is also the curse. Don't go there yet. Okay? But there's the blessing. And that's what we read about here in chapter, three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, blessed, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so, there's verse 3, pops up there. Now, who are the objects of the blessing. Well, first we have those who read the words of the prophecy, right? Secondly, we have those who hear the words of the prophecy. And finally, we have those who keep the things that are written in the words of the prophecy. Now, I venture to say that they're not three different people. But rather, they're all one and the same. Those who read it and hear it. And then what? Keep it. Psalm 1. David writes. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the way of sinner. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree that is planted by the streams of water, the rivers of water, it bringeth forth fruit in his season, his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. And so the reality is that we're told that if we want to be blessed, if we want to prosper, that we need to do what? Turn away from those who are ungodly, and turn, or actually the counsel of the ungodly, and turn toward the counsel of who? Of God. I ask you, do you spend more time reading the counsel of the world or the counsel of God? Are you more enthralled with what the world says is going on in the world and where they think the future is going to hold, what the future is going to hold? Or are you more enthralled with what God says about the condition of the world and where the world is heading? Who really has truth? God does. 
So why do we waste, spin our wheels and waste so much time worrying about the opinions of man? Go ahead. That's good. Talk to me. That's good. It's right in front of us. Because it's... Amen. Because it's right in front of us because we're lazy. Okay? And also, I think, there's a part of us that in the, wants to be in the world. That's exactly right. It's in the flesh and wants to be in the world. And that's why we're told, as I mentioned in Sunday school, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're supposed to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That's right. Not being conformed to the world, but rather transforming ourselves in the renewing of our minds. And so, garbage in, garbage out. God's word in, God's word out. Do you want to look like Christ? Spend more time in this than you do in the papers. Spend time more in this than you do in, in the movies of Hollywood. Spend time, more time in this than you do in the, the, the great novels, whether fictional or historical fictional or whatever they are. But it's amazing how it is a struggle for us to spend 15 minutes a day in God's word. Now, I, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. So, you don't have to put up your hand. Don't answer me. Okay? Do you believe in tithing? I hope your answer was yes. So, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. If you, because if you didn't put your hand up, you'd be wrong. Anyways. So, you should believe in tithing. Because Scripture teaches tithing. And so, if the Bible says it, I believe it. And that settles it. Right? Anyway. So, God's Word teaches tithing. And in the New Testament, it says that it should be proportional. But if His standard already was tithing, that means the proportion should start at 10% and go from there. Okay? Now, if God declares first fruits, that the first fruits are his, and if God declares that the tithe, the first tenth is his, then I don't think, in my mind, I really don't believe that that refers to only my money. Clearly, it referred to even my animals back then, but they didn't have necessarily the money, they had animals. I think it refers to my time and my talents as well. And so, today started almost 12 hours ago. Um, it started at midnight, according to Western culture, right? According to the Jewish culture, it started when? Almost 18 hours ago. It started at sun, sunset yesterday. So regardless of how you tell that time, we have 24 hours in a day, right? So, if God should get a tithe of my day, how much time should I be spending with God in His Word and in His presence? 2.4 hours. 2.4 hours. Now, God's a God of grace and a God of mercy and and I don't like those weird numbers. You know, apparently in football now they do. They, they said that it was at the nine and two-thirds, nine and two-thirds yard mark. Anyways, I never heard that before. It was an awesome thing. Anyways, but I'd rather round it. So let's be generous and round it down to what? 2.5. Two, two and a half hours. Oh, it's rounding up, isn't it? Oh, that's true. But, we do, but you're right. But we do round down because it's over, because rounding we would round down. So we'll round down to two hours. Two hours. But that's not right, because I, I, I'm sleeping for eight hours. Now, some of us may sleep a little longer, some of us may sleep a little less. I'm not going to talk to Greg about this, because this is really going to put Greg in a pinch. But anyways, Greg, Greg can sleep four hours and feel like he's been, oh, man, I just slept in. Anyways, I can't do that. But let's assume that everybody has that, that average eight hours. That means that you're only awake for 16 hours. So wouldn't it be right? Wouldn't it be gracious? Wouldn't it be just a proper thing to do to really only consider tithing off of the, the waking moments. Most of us like to say we spend eight hours with God, and that's when we're laying in bed, but that's not really the, the time of meditation. But anyways, and so, we, so we'll put it at 1.6 hours, right? 1.6, and we still would like to what? Round down. 
round down. Yeah, this time we'd have to round up and get back to that too. We don't want to do that, so we want to round back down. So now it's an hour and a half. The best we can do, if we really want to use this process, is to get us down to an hour and a half a day of reading God's Word and meditating upon Him and spending time with Him. Now think about that. If we really spent an hour and a half a day with God, could you imagine how much of His Word we would know? How much His Word would flow through us? How increasingly conformed to the image of Christ we would become? And I asked on on Wednesday, so this is kind of a test for those who are here on Wednesday, does anybody know what God's purpose for your life is? Anybody remember? To be conformed to His image. That's God's purpose. His, his express purpose in, in God's Word, that for whom He did foreknow, He also to be predestined that they be conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's purpose. That's God's purpose for our life. How does that happen? Well, by not being conformed to the world, by being transformed and the renewing of our mind. So, blessed is he who reads, who hears, who keeps God's word. It's a consistent theme of God's word. Psalm 119, verse 1. This goes back a couple years from when the church memorized the, the, the 119th Psalm. Does anyone remember how it starts off? Blessed is he that walks in the law of the Lord. Good. That's okay. Blessed are, oh, actually, I messed it up too. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with their whole heart. They also do no iniquities. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with the brightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes, oh, forsake me not utterly. Now, this first eight verses, let me continue on. The second stanza. See, I can't remember how to just say it, so I have to sing it, okay? But, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. Now we'll stop there. Okay, 12 verses are enough. Do you get the point? Where does the blessing come from? From God's word. It's from my relationship with God's word. Hiding it in my heart. Now for me, I had a hard time just quoting that. If I thought about it enough, I could probably quote it. But if you put something to music, guess what? I'll learn it. How diligently are we seeking to know God's words? This word to keep is an interesting word. It means to guard, to watch, to protect. 
It's the word that is used, you can see up there, of keeping the commandments. It's also the word that is used of the guards. When Jesus was on the cross, they were the keepers of Christ, if you would, while he was on the cross. Make sure he didn't get up and go away. Anyways, but that's the idea. And they were the keepers. They were the guards. That's the exact same word that is being used here for those of us who hear and read and then keep it. We guard it. We hide it in us and make sure that no one comes in steals it. Again, the challenge I have to myself as I come into this, this book of Revelation, I mean, this, this book of Revelation, in a sense, hear me in context, is meaningless if it's not built upon the foundation of what? The rest of God's Word. I mean, to know what's coming in the future is meaningless if you don't know Him and if you don't have a desire for, for Him at all. And so, the second thing we see then is the uh, motivation of the blessing. What is the, the motivation of the blessing? What's well, the imminence, imminence of Christ's return? We're told that the time is near. What's neat about, the, again, the word time is if you remember going back a couple weeks ago when we talked about um, Mary's birth and we talked about Galatians chapter 4 about when the fullness of time had come, I mentioned how the concept of time there was the word chronos. That there were two Greek words for time. There's kairos and chronos. Chronos is actually talking about the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks. Kairos is talking about events. And so here, God's not talking about a matter of moment of time, that there's a fullness of time, but rather here, he's talking about the events. An event is near. He's not talking about a, a date on a calendar is near, but rather an event is near. An event is at hand. And being at near or at hand is the ter same term that Jesus used and John used when they first came to the earth and they said, repent, because the kingdom is at hand or is near. The same concept. And so, again, I believe the message <laughs> is, is so consistent. All the way through, we are continually reminded that our life should be lived in the light that the kingdom is at hand. Whether or not you're here until Jesus Christ comes to call you up in the clouds, the kingdom of heaven is near. Not a one of us have a guarantee that we're going home today. You may be your plan to go home after church today. But you don't have a guarantee you're going to get there. The kingdom of heaven is only a breath away. World Magazine has a little section that I've always found interesting. And it's refer called, Man Knows Not His Time. And in that they do the, the, the listing of notable people as a, as a whole who have died. Many people, quote-unquote, before their time. Isn't that amazing? We live as though we have this guarantee in life. But not a one of us do. We just heard of a guy that coached um, Little League Baseball with me at the same time. Just passed away before Christmas. 
just before Thanksgiving, they found out he had cancer. And by Christmas, he passed away. Coaching baseball with me meant that he had what? Kids. He was probably younger than I am. I was probably one of the older coaches. <laughs> Let's go figure that one. And that causes me to stop and take note. I really don't have the guarantee. Sometimes we live like we do. But why should I be interested in reading and hearing and keeping the words of this prophecy and, if you would, God's word as a whole? Time is near. The event of his return is on the doorstep. That return may come in the clouds or it may come in a coffin. Does that make sense? Are you prepared and are you ready for that event, for that time? Now, along with the promise of a blessing, there's also a promise of a curse. I want you to turn back to the last page of the Bible. The very, very last page, unless your Bible was moved around, the last verses of the book of Revelation, of, of Christ revealing. And in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 22, we read again about Paul's, or John's witness, of John's testifying. He says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty serious comment, isn't it? I believe it's true, just as much as I believe verse 3 of chapter 1 is true. And what I find is very interesting about this is that throughout the entire Bible, again, God's word is consistent. And even from the days that Adam and Eve were on the earth, there was a decision to make for them to choose life or death, to choose blessing or cursing. Through the days of Moses leading the children of Israel out, Moses calls out to the children of Israel at the end of his, his statements of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is his final message. And at the very end he says, Choose life that you may live, and that your children may live, and that you may love the Lord God, for God is your life. Prior to that, his summary comes from the fact that when they went into the land, some of them were supposed to go on one mountain, and some of them were go on the other mountain. One mountain was going to be the mount of blessing. The other mount was the mount of curses. There would be blessing for those who kept God's word. There would be cursing 
for those who turned a stiff neck to God's truth. That same blessing and curse, I believe, is to us today as well. But it is specifically given as well to us. And so we see the audience of the curse. It's everyone who hears the words of this prophecy. And so, in a sense, at this moment, you're now what? Under the curse. Anyways, you're, you're, you're obligated at this moment. Sorry. That's probably one of the reasons as well that we like to ignore this. Because we don't want to be responsible for what's written in it. But I believe that this statement isn't just a statement about this revelation. I think that it refers to the entire revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe the entire revelation of Jesus Christ goes way beyond this book. But that it goes starts at Genesis 1.1. And that the entire word of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think that we'll see part of that, not in full, but as we do that little interlude and we talk about prophecy. Because we're going to be starting from the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, where they declared that they would come. But not just in the audience of the curse, but the aim of the curse. What is, what is the target? What is the curse targeting? Well, first of all, it targets anyone who adds to the words of the prophecy, that God will add to them the plagues written in the book of prophecy. Now, I want to tell you that as a pastor... I take this so serious. For years, I mean, probably the most anguishing time, it's kind of a paradox actually, it's probably one of the most thrilling times, but one of the most anxious moments is right now for me. When I preach God's word. When I'm teaching his word. Because James 3.1 says, Be not many masters, many teachers, because such have the greater condemnation, have the greater judgment. I know that I will give an account for every word that I teach you. Woe unto me if I seek to add or if I seek to... Oop, I messed up. I went the wrong way. I pushed the wrong button. Don't push the up arrow. <laughs> yeah, I removed... This is my outline. <laughs> Woe to me if I add to it or if I remove from it. Now, I think God is a God of grace. And God understands ignorance. And God understands our desires. I think that this is clearly talking about those who what? Deliberately are seeking to malign God's truth. Of God's word. Who are deliberately seeking. Now, this is though, on the other side, enough of a warning to me that it is tied specifically to this prophecy, to this revelation, that there are, and we're going to talk about this, a variety of methods of interpreting this book. Some of them make my head spin and think, how could you do that? How could a sane person who says they love God just ignore vast amounts of God's word and discount them. But there are. I don't want to ever be in that camp. I would rather err 
of being too literal than not taking God for what he said. So as we go through this, you need to understand that my aim, if you would, is to avoid that aim. I desire to take God's word for what it says. To not to add, that's called eisegesis, or to subtract from it, and to put in, to believe only what I, what I want to believe. But rather, I want to take from God's word to apply it to me. And so I ask you, as, in, as we close, what is your aim? What is your goal? Oh, the presence. That's next week. We'll do that next week as well, Lord willing. How faithful are you as a witness? As we talked about John's faithfulness as a witness, to declare the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and the things that he's seen. How faithful are you in this world to declare those things? Do you know why John was on the Isle of Patmos? Because he proclaimed the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and the things that he saw. But God met him there at the Isle of Patmos and gave him even more. Isn't that awesome? Never be afraid. God blesses. Just as he said. What side of the blessing are you on? Are you being blessed by God? Because of your reading and hearing and heeding? Or are you really on the side of the curses? What is your anticipation as we begin this new study? Are you looking forward to learning new things? Are you looking forward to how God is going to use this to challenge you in your, in your studies and in your walk? And finally, do you honestly believe the time is near? Jesus himself said what? The time is near. Do you believe it or not? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Let's take our hymnals and turn to 759. What if it were